I'm Asan. It's Friday, and this is the Friday show. The international break is over. The Scousers are coming to Manchester. Joining me to preview the massive lunchtime kickoff tomorrow, I've got George and firstly, Chris. Morning, Chris. Good morning, Asan. How are you? I'm pretty good. How are you? Yeah, I'm all right. It's uh, yeah, it's been a long week. I'm actually on leave today, which is a delight. So I can yeah, it's. Uh, I'm going to go and see the new Ridley Scott film Napoleon this evening. Oh, excellent! Got high hopes for that, and then roll in with the Scousers tomorrow lunchtime. So yeah, excellent. nice, very nice long weekend. Yeah, very cultured as well. George, <laughs> what about you? Are you doing anything cultured? I'm also going to go see Napoleon at some point this weekend. Um, not tonight though, and. Uh, yeah, the um, before that though, the big one tomorrow lunchtime, uh, a rumble in the jungle with the Scousers. So yeah, ready for that one now. Excellent. Um, well, look, before we before we dive into the uh, into the Liverpool preview, just some some international break thoughts and business that that I wanted to go over with you guys. I see that James Duck has been a, done a big piece on on Phil Foden this morning, and and it, it it's something that I've I've talked about in the last sort of four six weeks that the kind of how I feel as though he's he is maturing this season so I'll start with you George how do you think Foden's season has unfolded so far and do you feel as though he's kicking on from last season I think he's definitely stepped it up a gear from last season um he had a really tricky campaign last year in in certain ways for him um injuries, I think personal stuff, um, not playing at his highest level. And I think towards the back end of the season, we started to see what we all know and realise is the real Phil Foden. I mean, when he came on, especially in that Champions League final, I, w- I was I was pretty blown away from his by his performance and his composure coming into that scenario, replacing De Bruyne in you know the biggest game of his career and just how he started running the show for us. And that that gave me a lot of hope coming into this season and I think he's been terrific. I think he's really starting to hone his defensive um, capabilities and also from an attacking sense, I think he's been a real threat as a creator and as a finisher this season and I think he's probably gone under the radar um, in the wider football world because of how Jude Bellingham has been this season uh, playing for Real Madrid and, and you know, the nature of this country. We're only ever allowed one nice thing in England, aren't we? And we're only allowed one good young player in at the moment is Jude Bellingham. But I think Foden's definitely been very, very impressive this campaign so far. Chris, um, I guess a slightly different angle for you. There's been... There's been a, there was obviously a lot of chat about how Phil's best position will be centrally. Um, and I've, I've complained at times that his versatility has worked against him. Um, he's obviously playing more of a right sided role for City this season. Do you think I'm, I did him a disservice and I'm underestimating him by complaining about him being moved around positionally? Or do you still feel that? His best place is central. It is. It's, it's quite. It's quite hard to to really gauge that because I I've not seen him enough playing centrally in in a in a peak city team. Um, I agree with George. I, I was very surprised when De Bruyne got injured in the Champions League final 
and and Foden came on because I, I I just wasn't sure if Pep was going to put him straight in, but actually, in that that reflects the mixed messages we get because to put him in at that point in the final was an absolute affirmation of Guardiola's belief in Foden that he can play in that position. I also wonder whether we would be having this a uh, debate about about if he should play in the middle if. De Bruyne wasn't injured, so there wouldn't really be a gap for him in the middle of this season, and we, and we would we would just acquiesce to the idea that he'd be playing on the right on the on the right hand side. But I do think I do think he, I, I think his most I think the most untapped potential in, in him has been his ability to play in the middle, and that's simply because by virtue of the of the players that we've got, that he's just not had the opportunity. I just do wonder whether this season, but particularly next season, when we might see a reduction in De Bruyne's contribution, it feels like a tipping point for for for, for Phil that 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 if he's going to cement his position in the middle, it needs to be probably going in, in into next season. So I, he's not a utility player, and if he is, is 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 a luxury one, but. Um, I just feel that that he's one of our key attributes. And I think for him to really develop, he he does need to be starting to be played consistently in 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 the same position. I just do wonder under Pep if that'll ever be in the middle. I, I I'm just I I I'm unsure about it. Um, but I th- I do think this season, if you look at the number of appearances he's had, he's starting to become a regular on 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 the team sheet. So yeah, we will see. I mean, I, I just think we'll see when De Bruyne comes back as well how that dynamic works. Yeah, definitely. I think th- I think that will be the the um, a little bit the interesting moment is is when Kev comes back, how Guardiola shuffles his pack again. I do think I do think in the last sort of four six weeks that Phil has really cemented his place in the current best eleven. Um, Absolutely, yeah. and and I also wonder whether when Kev comes back, it's maybe Alvarez who takes a step back rather than Phil. Mm. I think, what, and also what's interesting is the the the, the focus has shifted to Grealish and Doku about, about in terms of that starting competition. It's it's it the, the spotlight's been shifted away from um, um, f- from Foden in terms of whether he starts. And as you say, I think that's because he is starting on a regular basis. I do wonder though about Alvarez because I, because I think that you can see the way that Pep is is molding him away from that out and out striker to, to be one with with more with more um, characteristics to, to to his play. But I don't know. I, I I'm seeing Alvarez as somebody that Pep is starting to to to, to rely on more than more. So I'm not sure. So I'm interested to see who is sacrificed on a regular basis when Kev does come back, hopefully in the beginning of the new year. George, I'm gonna ask you the Alvarez question. Do you do you see a, a world in which he ends up developing into something other than number nine? It's a tricky one. I, I think Pep's, like Chris said, I think Pep's trying to mould him into something other than a classic out-and-out striker. And I think that's appropriate if we want Alvarez in the same team as Haaland because we're never going to play with two real out-and-out strikers the way Pep plays. We may, some some phases of play, we may have two up front, but, you know, rarely. And I think it, I think it could happen. But then I do wonder as well, do you think if he is moulded and because he's still a young player, if those characteristics that Pep wants him to have get really ingrained in him, do you think then, say, if Haaland's injured 
for a little bit or, um, I don't know, band or whatever. Do you think then Alvarez, when he's going back to playing striker, it'll take him, he'll have an adjustment period? That's something I, I wonder about. Will will it not hamper his abilities as an out-and-out striker, but will he get kind of a bit confused in, in what he's mm. supposed to be doing? I mean, I, I guess the... I, I guess the parallel will be somebody like Gabriel Jesus, uh, only in so far as th- there was moments in his City career where he's kind of running back towards midfield and actually as a, as a number nine, you want him running in towards goal. Uh, yeah. I, think, I think the great thing about Alvarez is that his natural movement as an attacker, as a striker, his, his natural sort of ability to run in behind and also his natural finishing ability it sort of means that i i don't i'm not worried that it'll it'll dampen his his attack his his striker skills by playing doing what pep's asking him to do right now i think on the contrary it's just going to make him a more rounded number nine but i do think eventually he he ends up landing in 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 the number nine spot um and you know, depending on 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 Haaland's future, if in two years or three years Erling wants to go to to Madrid, then then I certainly I think that Alvarez would be the perfect replacement. I just I think he's I think he uh, actually I'll, I'll ask you to I think he starts for pretty much every other football club in the Premier League. Oh, uh, c- c- categorically, and and I th- and what's interesting the comparison with with with, with Gabby Jesus is quite interesting because. If you, with Jesus, Guardiola tried to put more strings to his bow by bringing him into the midfield sometimes. But but as we know that in terms of an out and out striker, Gabby was not is not at the top of the tree. He just simply mm. isn't. Whereas Alvarez has the potential to be there, and he's he's a more natural finisher. And I think any any adaptation of his game that Guardiola does with him will only enhance what he already has. Um, and and I I think we have to give credit to to, to 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 Guardiola with this because my fear for Alvarez is with Haaland coming in is that Alvarez wouldn't get a sniff and actually it uh, Peppers used the 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 inconvenience of of De Bruyne being injured to actually find a way of of nurturing Alvarez and also giving an opportunity to to, to score goals and I agree if Haaland disappears in, in, in a couple of seasons hopefully one but but if he does. We will have a striker who can step into that role, whom we know will guarantee us goals if he's given us the the, the opportunity. I think the purchase of Alvarez has been an has been a winner on every single level so far yeah. in terms of timing, in terms of the amount we paid, in terms of the way that he's being gently put into the team and finding his place as well. I, I, it's, it's, he's been a great purchase and will continue to to, 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 to to contribute. Whether I want him to start tomorrow is another question though. But, um, but yeah, he's, he, he's been a great purchase over us. So, George, how do you feel about <clears throat> this international break? Did you watch any international football? Are you bothered? I did, yeah. I did subject myself to watching um, a lot of the England matches. Um I was I wasn't really going to bother um with the with the North Macedonia match but then I saw Rico Lewis was starting and then I, I just couldn't resist I, I had to see him in action see how he fared for England and that was kind of all I was looking for as soon as he got the call up to the squad I was just hoping to see a bit of Rico Lewis in action and um you know I thought he was 
absolutely sensational considering it was his uh, international debut at left back. Um, re- really, really proud moment as a fan of uh, of him and obviously a City fan. Um, having four, I think we had four people starting the match as well. Um, against North Macedonia and Foden was running the show as well. So those were the elements I, I enjoyed. Some of the tactical setup and the the way that we had to play the football as in England. Uh, that was a bit of a um. It's it's just such a culture shock when you're used to watching Guardiola's uh, City team. That's I think that's the biggest adjustment, and I have to kind of tell myself that all the time that in the club side of things, I'm spoiled in what I'm being given each week. So, you know, I uh, but I took I took a step back and um, I managed to enjoy the moments I wanted to from the international break. But I am glad it's over now. How did Rico do? I mean, he played left back, didn't he? Yeah, he played left back and. Um, he was coming in. He was coming inside a lot. He was getting quite advanced, um, and he unfortunately gave away a penalty, which was not a penalty in the slightest. I mean, he he jumped up for a header, and um, his arms, as they do, go back, and his and his hand brushes um, their striker's face, and obviously their striker goes down like he's been snipered, and the one goes to VAR for ages. And they finally give a penner, and I've not I've not seen anyone, even rival, you know, rival fans who would like to laugh at City players' um, uh, misfortunes. Um, they nobody said it was a penner, and um, but outside of that, I thought he did really well. He got man of the match. Um, his link-up play uh, was sensational. We've not seen that from a from an England left back in a while. I don't think. Um, when everybody's fully fit, he'll get the start because of how you know conservative Southgate is with his selection. Um, but I thought you know he looked like he'd been playing in that team and with that group of players for for a long, long time, and that's a testament to you know how intelligent he is as a footballer. How did Phil do? Phil was he was you know how how he's been this season really, but with maybe more of a maybe more of a main creative role in the side and. Everything that was positive, I felt, was going through him. He was put some lovely through balls through to Watkins that, um, you know, in, in other in other moments may have been goals. Um, he was always looking to go forward, control the ball. wasn't giving a, away possession, keeping things ticking, keeping a nice pace when he had it. And again, he he's a player that in these England debates about who's going to start in the Euros, a lot of people exclude Phil. Um, and for other players, and I and I just don't see how England win a tournament without Foden playing. He he has the, this mercurial talent and unpre- unpredictability that we don't have in a lot of players, and it seems to be like we can only have one of him or Bellingham in the side. This kind of debate about who's going to push forward. In actual fact, I think you can play both if you go for a bit more of a defensive backline, but. Yeah, I think Phil has only raised his stocks um, at, at the England level over, over this break as well. Hey, son, do you want to, do you want to give a very brief rationale why it wasn't a penalty? Yes. Very brief then. And I didn't watch the match, but I did, I did watch the, the incident because it came up on the group chat, so I checked it out. Um, when uh, in the laws of the game, IFAB gives us directives and with an incident in the penalty box, there's three directives to, to consider. And you have to consider this very, very quickly. First of all, was there contact? Okay, so there was contact. His hand did hit the player's face. 
Second, di- second directive is, is was it enough for the player to go to the ground? Uh, categorically not. And the third directive is, is was the player looking for it or did the player exploit the, exploit the contact in terms of uh, um, exaggerating the impact, which he did. Um, and the fact that in that situation, I thought the, the VAR was, as we've talked about before, re-refereeing the game. They were looking to enhance the incident when it actually wasn't there. And the amount of time it took to get to the decision proves that so it was a really really poor decision and one that they could have easily just said no there's not enough in there they would seem to be working overtime to try and find the offense in there it was just a bemusing decision that i can only put down to the idiosyncrasies of of international football well unfortunately i didn't see it <laughs> kind of Probably brings best. me, to, yeah. But kind of brings me to the next question. I, I feel as though, like, obviously, uh, I feel as though there's just been a lot of international breaks since the season started, and and I just this is one where, I, because we've got Liverpool after the break, my big thing was I don't want any of our lads playing any football over this international break, and then the stories of oh, Rodri's pulled up with a little injury, and Ake's a bit injured, and just put my hands together and started praying that it was all, you know, pep induced injuries that, that gets, gets them all back to, uh, all back to the CFA and, and training in preparation for, uh, for, for Saturday. What about you? I, um, I hate international breaks and, 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 but, but the, to be fair though, I do take them as respite because often watching City is so intense that it is a bit of respite, but more and more now I don't pay, I, I don't really pay much attention to, to international breaks. I think this season's felt a little bit peculiar in terms of the narrative, which might have reinforced the feeling of there's loads of international breaks. I think that. I didn't want to go into a national break after 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 a four four game of chaos against Chelsea. I wanted the I wanted a game the following weekend to be able to sort of extinguish that from our thoughts. There's also this thing I feel as if we are slightly altering the approach this season by design or by default. I'm not sure where we. It looks like we've started to go up a gear a little bit early in the season. Normally, we find it by January Feb time where we really start to kind of steal a march it felt as if we were doing that a little bit early mm. and I, th- I thought I just didn't want another international break and also I, I just like you say potential for injuries but also just further scrutiny about City players playing in this 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 stagnant Southgate England team that I, I can just do without the the whole narrative um, around that. So I just I think it's, I think for me it's it's clear that I'm just glad that this break is over. Yes, well it's that thing. Is it good that it's Liverpool our first game back after the break, or would we want a slightly easier shoe in? But actually, I think in a way it might work in our favour that, that 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 it's it's Liverpool at home the first game back after the international break. I think certainly uh, my next question was actually going to be about the Chelsea 4-4. I mean, uh, before I before I say that, I've got to say I'm contractually obliged not to talk about Gareth Southgate anymore. After <laughs> uh, after some of my recent comments, there was uh, a few angry DMs from people. Um, so, yeah, <laughs> I won't talk about our Gareth. Um, George, the Chelsea 4-4, does that tell us more about Chelsea or does that tell us more about City? Or was it just uh, kind of one of those nights where you don't really learn anything about either team? It's just a mad game. I think it's. I think it um, was was a mad night as as the as the main header. I think some of that sloppiness that we we had at the back was 
stuff that we've not really seen in ages and and you are allowed a game or two like that in a season and if you are going to have those games preferably have them before Christmas like we have done um, and I think it also reinforced the idea that this Chelsea side are a good side and also they are suited to playing teams who push up the pitch with a high line um, and they're very positive on the ball I think you know, they were creating loads of chances because they have pace and um, attacking threat in behind and that's what Pochettino wanted and that's how he has had some joy against Pep before with Spurs. Whereas when he came up against Brentford, you know, Brentford were more than happy to sit with a back five, three midfielders in front with the two strikers pressing their defence and going, right, break us down. And Chelsea didn't really have the ideas for that yet. But what they do have the ideas for is when City's back four slash back three are on the halfway line and we lose possession cheaply, then they've just got runners and they can mm. get in behind. So I I'm, I wasn't too disheartened by it. I, I just thought some of our players had days at the office that they're not going to have again or won't have very regularly. And I thought Chelsea were re really, really bright. And I think obviously they had Palmer and Sterling who obviously had a bit of a chip on both their shoulders and maybe rightly so, wrongly so, and wanted to pro prove a point in which, you know, maybe they felt they did um, and all credit to them. But yeah, I, I'm not too disheartened and I, I don't think we'll carry any baggage from it over into um, the Liverpool match. Chris, you want to have a word on the Chelsea game before we move on? I think, yeah, it was, I mean, it's not, it wasn't just our defence, it was our midfield as well that was sloppy. And, uh, and even though our midfield are often stationed on the 18 yard line of the opposition, we, we, we were, we were not good all over the pitch. I, th I think the thing I found the most disheartening was the way we were unable to wrestle back control of the game. Um, despite constantly coming back and and, and, and levelling the scoreline. And I was disappointed that when we went 4-3 up, that we didn't just manage the game out. It felt it felt inevitable that that uh, Chelsea were going to get an equaliser one way or the other. And the one thing I will say is, is there's been three times this season when we've had learning opportunities. And I just hope that, that Pep sees them. So, so against Wolves, the learning was... There will be times when you play so badly that if you play so badly, you will lose a game just despite being the the, the, the the treble winners. And against Wolves, it, we were terrible, but we've won games like that before. Uh, but Wolves just capitalise, and so it, it's we can't we can take nothing for granted. Against Arsenal, the learning was it, it's like if you play for a draw, which we did it, inevitably, there's always a chance that you're going to come unstuck with a with a spawny goal, and which is what they got. And against Chelsea, that. I think the learning is is never take that that control of the game f for granted and don't allow the opponent cr to, to to create chaos. That I think more teams will try and do that. More teams more teams will try and push as high as Wolves did, and more teams will try and create chaos as as Chelsea did. And I just want Guardiola to be able to see that as a learning opportunity and the players as well. None of the players will walk off that pitch having been grateful to be involved in an eight-goal thriller. They'll be disappointed that they didn't wrestle control back. So it was a crazy game um, and one I never want to see City playing again because I've, we've, I've become so accustomed to control that it was quite... It was quite shocking to, to watch my team in a game where they never had c c control. Um, but yeah, it, it's a game that I want to put to bed. I'm glad that I'm glad neutrals enjoyed it because I didn't enjoy a second of it. <laughs> really? I, I'll be honest. I, do, I, I enjoyed it. I enjoyed it. 
four, four, there was four moments I enjoyed. It's when, it's when we scored, and that was it. Because I, yeah. I, there, there was just something horribly inevitable about what was happening. And, I, and, when, and when we got that fourth goal, the deflection from Roger, I thought, right, nail it, bed down kill the game, ruin the game, start fouling in the centre of the pitch, just kill the time on the game and we allowed Chelsea to, to, to come back in. That was the most disappointing um, attribute. It, did, it didn't surprise me at all that we that we lost it to to a penalty because it's, it wasn't just that Diaz went flying, it's because, they, because the Chelsea striker actually missed the, going for the ball. So it, it was an accident. But mm. yeah, I, I, it was, yeah I, I can see, guess, wider perspective, it was enjoyable, but I just, it was not a game that I wanted to, to not take three points from because we need those cushions of points because we've got a difficult running before Christmas. It's true, but I think the flip side of that is that I, I back this city team, um, and they've and and they've shown down the years that they should be backed. And what you said earlier about you know maybe we're coming to the boil a little faster than we do in, in than we have done in previous seasons. I think that is true. I think I remember Kyle Walker saying something maybe a couple of months ago about how oh people always talk about how you know City are really dangerous in the new year and it doesn't matter how many points behind they are they'll they'll always they'll always put a run together. He said this season why don't we lead from the front? Um mm. and and actually I, I do find it quite interesting that even though we feel that we're probably not near our best and have shown a lot of chinks in our armor at the same time we're still top of the league we still mm-hmm. scored the most goals we still conceded the least amount of goals well i don't know after chelsea if we have conceded the least not amount anymore goals. we haven't we've conceded no. 12 and liverpool and arsenal conceded 10 yeah right, it was okay. an ex- it was an expensive game in terms of our goal our, uh, the, our goal difference yeah yeah, no, but I mean, look, I, I think my, my overriding point is uh, I think that we're in a really good spot. I, I'm not, I'm, I personally don't find myself massively worried. Um, and I think that I, I always tend to view, you know, when you say like, oh, we've got a really tough run, that's what we're here for. You know, mm, I, I, I think that that's the, that's what separates the good from the great is when you when you find yourself in this position where you've got two, three, four big games, how do you navigate that period? Um, and you have to be a little bit sensible as well as being gunko. And I think that, you know, hindsight tells me that if you'd have said to me before the Chelsea game, you can have a point, I'd have taken it. I would have taken it because it's just going away to Chelsea, going away to Liverpool, going away to Arsenal, going away to Spurs. Those are, you know... Those are games that you you got to be happy with a with a point from. Old Trafford's the only quote unquote big ground where I won't accept a point because they're just shite. Um, but I'm, I and I take that point, but it, but I think this season Chelsea are the exception to that only because I I know they're starting to emerge now, and Pochettino is starting to find some sort of rhythm and consistency with them. But I still think that whilst they are starting to find those levels, the game against Spurs, their, their crazy game against Spurs, still displayed that they are still in a transitional phase and they are there for the taking. And that's why I, I expected three points from, from Stamford Bridge. Most seasons I wouldn't. I'd be happy with a point, but I think it was just this particular point of the season and where Chelsea are. I actually thought if we'd, if we'd, if we'd control the game as we normally do, 
do and managed and navigated the chaos Chelsea were trying to 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 create on the pitch, we could have taken three points. So yeah, Anfield away, Tottenham away, then Arsenal away. Yeah, I, I think a, a point will be a good haul at that point. But just this point in the season with that Chelsea team, I, I was disappointed we didn't take three points. Fair enough. Um, so look, normally when we do the Friday show, we tend to look back at City-related news over the past week or two weeks. And I mean, I shouldn't be surprised because I did kind of feel it would end up like this, but it feels as though the Everton Everton failing the profit and sustainability rules and, and getting dot points has effectively become an enormous Manchester City news story um, over the last week in particular. George, are you... So have you seen a lot of the coverage, the the Everton coverage, and are you surprised at how how sort of defensive the 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 journalistic fraternity, and I use that word very lightly or very loosely, should I say? Um, are you surprised at how how much of the journalistic fraternity have gone into bat for Everton? I, I wish I was surprised, but unfortunately, it was almost as I expected. And I think whilst Everton is sat struggling in the Premiership for the last few years, and if they continue to do so, they can probably get away with whatever they want in these in this kind of arena of FFP and um, financial instability because they're not a threat to the to the uh, to the men in red, the three the three main uh, three main supported clubs in this country, and. I think if Everton had won three of three of the, three out of three of the last Premier Leagues and just won the Champions League, I think we would be seeing a lot of hit pieces on them and um, a lot of derogatory things said about their club. I think the nature of success in this country, if you upset the apple cart and you're not, you know, United, Arsenal, or Liverpool. Or Liverpool the people people come for you and as long as you're not winning people kind of feel sorry for you and I think that that's what's happened in this case I think as long as Everton aren't a threat to anybody's trophy hall or anybody's Champions League place then people will go oh it's Everton and put their arm around them and and you know treat them with kindness which I'm pretty sure they're not going to treat um, other clubs if they're found guilty <clears throat> Chris did the size of the size of the points deduction surprise you? Not from a because I, I did a great podcast with Stefan, which if if people mm -hmm. haven't heard, uh, it's it's on the night three twenty player. We did it earlier this week, and and we've kind of gone through the legalities of it, so to speak. We've gone through the rule book and and how the independent commission came to the um, the the points deduction that they came to. But just from a supporter point of view, from a philosophical point of view. Um, do you feel a sporting sanction like that is appropriate for what I would consider ultimately to be a financial transgression? I know that people, many people have said, yeah, but it's, you know, that they, they gained a sporting advantage, but I just don't really view it like that because I think that that would be fine if everybody earn the same amount of money and everybody could spend the same amount of money. But mm. the reality is that what you can spend is is directly connected to your turnover. And the Champions League clubs have a massive, massive, massive advantage and effectively have 
stratified the Premier League in such a way that Sorry, I'm going on a mini rant here, but I just want to get this out. Like, I just, uh, for me, I just think it's, I think it's a joke that uh, a financial transgression is met with a points deduction, which in another season could relegate Everton, which would then be financially catastrophic for that football club. So that's sort of my general view mm. on the points deduction. Where do you find yourself on it? I guess, I mean, like you said, and you, Stefan, did a great podcast about this and you're far more informed than I am, but I, I, from what you're saying, I, I understand that the, the points deduction is based on a kind of a sort of per, every point is worth the amount, is, is, is relative to the amount of money that they, they spent over. So so it's done as an equation and, and I think that's why it became, it be, it's such a high number of points. I guess the question would be is, from the from the league's point of view, is is how if the rule the rules are there and and the and the clubs know if they're breaking the rules or not, what's the other option for punishment? Because if you if you punish them financially, how hard are you actually hitting them? Because most Premier League clubs have proven to be quite savvy to be able to navigate the, the, their funds. I think timing's really important here. That they that they've got it out early, and they they've 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 meted out the, the punishment a third of the way into the season, rather than at the end of the season when when Everton would have no opportunity to, to battle against those points. Um, but yeah, it, it I think the timing was quite interesting. I don't know how long that investigation has been going on for because I I know what's been suggested in the media, but it might be going on for for for, for a lot longer. But it feels. It, my my immediate thought was sh- shit. Like, <laughs> if that's what Everton get, if City are in trouble, what will be, what will be what will we receive? And it could be quite um, substantial. Yeah, but I think I think uh, as we said on the podcast with Stefan, look, the the City situation is completely different. The mm-hmm. reality is that the the Premier League have accused City of of. Uh, uh, of industrial scale financial and accounting mm. fraud, right? So that's not a case of like we should be worried about a points deduction. People will get arrested if if they if the if the independent commission come back and say everything the Premier League have said is true, is actually true, and they've proven it and city are guilty. Well, you know, the knock-on effects from that will be it just it, it you can't you can't really even predict it. It's so kind of unprecedented the whole thing is so unprecedented and i and i think that the the city and the chelsea cases they they speak to a kind of um a little bit of a a little bit of a weird place that the premier league finds itself in the premier league is the biggest sporting brand in the world in my opinion it's the most powerful league in the world it's the most watched league in the world. And the reason for most of those things is the unfettered capitalism that has allowed people to come in and put money into the league to buy the best players and buy mm. the best managers. I think that the league, if it finds itself in a position where it has to seriously punish City and Chelsea, will effectively just be shooting itself in the foot. From my mm. point of view, I just I don't see a I don't see a world, and and this is the other thing that I think is really interesting. I think that because we we live in the city bubble, right? So we tend to see this 
through the bubble of the top six and the journalistic fraternity. So we feel a weight of negativity. We feel like everybody hates us and everybody's against us. Look, if you if you go lower down the Premier League, I, I dare say most people could give less of a shit about FFP and City and whether in 2011 and 2012 Mancini got paid in an Abu Dhabi for, through an Abu Dhabi consultancy for something that he'd done at City. Do you know what I mean? It's just, it's mm -hmm. not, th th those things to day-to-day to -day football fans are just not interested in that. And actually what I feel is, is happening right now is that the British media, right, uh, because of the because of how beholden they are to the red clubs to the scousers to arsenal and to the rags right the british media are continually undermining the league itself because all of this shit around city it all begins and ends with the pressure that is put privately privately from the red clubs and the pressure that is brought to bear publicly via their mouthpieces in the media i think it's really interesting that whereas most media outlets have gone with the angle right that what's happened to everton is really unfair that it just that, that the sanction is too big right the Athletic, which effectively is a fanzine for the Scousers, the Rags, and uh, um, uh, and Arsenal, uh, they have gone out of their way to say Everton are cheats, Everton are cheated, and I see exactly what is going on there. I see what framing is going on there, and I understand why they want to frame it like that because. That idea, that very principle of, well, they cheated, they knew the rules, right? And they broke those rules, ergo their cheats. That is all because of the City case in particular, because those clubs want City to be found to have cheated. And those clubs want to be able to say, well, strip them of their titles, because then those clubs will get titles mm. that City won legitimately. So for me, the entire thing is a farce, genuinely. I just, I think... I think profit and sustainability should always be only about debt. I think that owners should be allowed to invest whatever they can afford to invest in their football club. And if the league has a concern about the feasibility or the sustainability of the investment, get the owners to put money in escrow that guarantees the, uh, the, the kind of financial sustainability of the club, because you're dealing with billionaires here. Like people make the, people make the distinction that like, oh, well, you know, how can, how can, how can poor John Henry compete with Shape Mansour? Well, you can only have 25 players in a squad. And actually, four of those have got to be from your academy. And another four have got to be homegrown. So you can only have a finite amount of footballers in your squad. And then on top of that, you can't play everybody. So you can't have a bunch of world-class players in your squad because they'll get pissed off after a year and they'll all want to leave. So this idea that John Henry can't compete with Sheikh Mansour and FFP needs to be brought there to level the playing field, it's just bollocks. It's just It just comes down to the fact that they don't want to invest and they have a problem with other people investing in their clubs. Sorry, Chris. I th no, I, th I think it's... Um there's something about when a punishment is handed out, it serves two purposes, and it and it's and it's a it's a and it's a recognition of the of any offence that has that has been committed by a particular party. Um, 
uh, and it should be an appropriate um, uh, recognition of that. But the second part of it is that it sh- that punishment then should be then should be seen indirectly as a deterrent for other clubs doing the same thing. And what I struggle with is what you've alluded to before, is that when the Premier League was created, it was created with five or six clubs' interests in mind. But but they created a monster. And then, and then the development of the Champions League reinforced the feeding of that monster. So, so there was always going to be a, 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 a minority of major clubs who would dominate the league and would also be able to invest in their squad and their facilities greater than the other three quarters of that league. And as you say, the, the, the wider message for not just Everton, but for the clubs who are outside of that top five, that, that top six, is that, is that if you have ambitions to try and match these clubs we will punish you for it. And that's obviously Everton, I think, was mismanaged. But part of it was trying to compete and part of it was trying to survive within the Premier League because going out of the Premier League can prove catastrophic and for some clubs it can have an existential threat. I also feel that, and I know that the City case is very different because it, because it's, 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 there's a much bigger scope to it. But I also feel as, as if the Premier League, in a way, are acting like a corporate bully and have slapped the nearest person that they can to set an to uh, to, to, to to set an example for everyone else to back off and do as they're told, um, and you know and, and and as you say the same level of scrutiny has not really been afforded for 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 United's business plan um, and the other m- major clubs as well. So I think I was shot by the speed that came out. I was shot by the the the, the amount of points. But it's also, I do think, indirectly, the league can also use it as a kind of marketing tool to encourage to, to 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 shift opinion about well, if that's what if that's what Everton received, what what should City receive? What should mm. Chelsea receive as well? It feels like there's a lot of messaging behind this punishment, which actually, really, yeah, Not which really actually misses there. the point really. Totally, no, totally. And look, I just, um, um, uh, I, I think that I think the fact that so much immediately got spoken about City just reinforced for me just how sort of um, on the outside we find ourselves in terms of media representation. Because most of this does just come down to the way that the media frame these things. Um, from the league's point of view, they don't want an independent regulator. Yeah, comes down mm. to that. They want to they want to show that they can they can police themselves. But the issue that they've got is the issue of policing should not be an issue of whether a really rich guy can invest in his own football club. That just isn't an issue in football. There are a myriad of real, genuine issues that need to be dealt with inside of football. And to focus with the kind of maniacal obsession that the media have focused on money yeah and how much one club can spend yeah i mean it just it, it's it's just incredibly self-serving from mm-hmm. from from everybody involved right gentlemen we're going to take a little break and then we're going to come straight back and we're going to chat about liverpool and we're back in the room um yes boys george i'm gonna start with you 
Scousers tomorrow. Early kickoff at home. I guess I'll start with, do you think that they're our main rivals? Have they somehow usurped Arsenal this season? I, I think I think they are, and I think as as long as Guardiola and Klopp are both managers at City and Liverpool, I think they kind of will always be our biggest rival. Arsenal obviously had a great campaign last season, um, but I, I was not watching their games um, in the in the running with the same like maniacal intent that I was with like the Liverpool games when I was just praying for a for a drop point. I think I think it got feisty between City and Arsenal last year, but not on the scale of City Liverpool. And I think what we're seeing this season is Arsenal Arsenal looking good still, but they've they've they're not the surprise package anymore. And now teams know how they're going to play and can set up for that and try and frustrate them. Arsenal seen a lot more low blocks this season. And whereas Liverpool Maybe clubs underestimated them coming into the season and forgot, you know, how good some of their players are, the likes of Salah and them, um, who's having a fantastic campaign, and they've made a few, few good signings as well. And I think, I think we're gonna we're gonna be unfortunately in that um, that tandem with them till till about April time. I think I don't, I, I just can't see anyone at the moment with the football playing creating a big gap. Um, in the Premier League, I think it's going to be a tight race again. Interesting. Chris, would you go along with that? Um, I, I do think that, that at least two clubs will start to pull away in that February, February period, I think. What's been interesting about Liverpool is they have quietly improved behind the the kind of hyperbole of Arsenal's season last season which imploded I think I'm seeing a shift in Liverpool they, they having watched them this season they've become more methodical if, and if, if if you if you look at their results that they are they're becoming very consistent and they're conceding goals but they're scoring quite a lot of goals as well and and their losses particularly the one against Spurs you could it's very much an anomaly I think and um, What's interesting though is I do think that Liverpool's fan base has lowered their expectation over the past couple of seasons when 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 Liverpool have not really been well particularly last season they just weren't in the running at all, and right now I think that that slightly remains the same. Is that is that I don't get a strong sense of the Liverpool presence in terms of that media hype and the and the fans over emotional sense of entitlement. I'm not hearing that as much, probably because I'm I'm being deafened by Arsenal's uh, version of it. But I do think that come end of January, if it's Liverpool and City, <coughs> excuse me, who are still leading, which I do anticipate, I think that emotional switch will flick for Liverpool when they st- Liverpool fans in particular when they start to sniff, and I think it will then probably settle into t- as a repeat of some of the seasons that we've had previously when we battled it out. I do think there are main rivals. Because I just don't think, I still don't think Arsenal have enough. I still don't think they have the mental aptitude for it. And I think Spurs will falter uh, and United are, are hilarious. I think Chelsea will continue to be inconsistent this season. So yes, I would say they are our main rivals. And I think this is, I think even is it, we're still only a third way into the season. But I still think this is, is our biggest game this season so far. And, is, and it will be quite telling, I think. Mm. Is it? 
I mean, I guess I, I tend to view these games as I enjoy big games more than, for example, Howard, because I, I guess in the end, three points is three points. Yeah. Um, and I don't, I look at a game like tomorrow and go, well, you know, Liverpool could beat us 8-0 and we still go on to win the league. Do you know what I mean? Nothing will be mm-hmm. nothing will be decided tomorrow. So it just becomes about the for me, it becomes a little bit about the mentality of the whole thing. How how do you perform? What sort of message are you sending out to the rest of the league? What sort of message are you sending to Liverpool if they're if they are your main rivals? Um George, do you do you do you feel our record at the Etihad in 2023 gives you strong confidence that we can turn up tomorrow and take three points. I'm definitely more confident going into to this game than I was going into it against Liverpool at home, say, a couple of years ago. I think the journey we've been on the last two years and how much more defensively solid we've become and also how little we have lost at home, especially in the big games uh, under the bright lights as well. You know, we've we've not really been phased. And I think, like I said, a couple of years ago, I would have been really, really nervous about tomorrow. I'm, I am still nervous, but it's just because of the nature of the game and, you know, what's at stake in it. Can, we can put a real a real um, stamp on, on the season if we win. But in terms of fearing a loss... Um, Nowhere near as nervous as I, as I once was. I still I still think it will be a close game. I can't see us running away with it, but I think all the city side have done over the last two years should should fill the fan base with confidence, and we should go into it going right. We're we're the big dogs, and it's Liverpool have to come here and prove something. Uh, are you? Um, how do you feel about early kickoffs? Like obviously we're at home in the early kickoff. Uh, I've always been a bit like early kickoffs after international break are a little bit of a pain because you feel like sometimes the players are yeah. a little bit still asleep or on the plane. Um, but just by the virtue of the fact that we're, we're at home, do you think that then suits us more than it suits them? Yeah, I think it, it does suit us a little more. Early kickoffs are annoying. And, and as a fan, you know, it, the atmosphere is never quite as good for an early kickoff. So I don't in, enjoy it for that reason. I think I prefer them to Klopp, though, because he, I think he hates them more than, more than anything, uh, in, in, on this earth, the way he speaks about them. But, um, they, they can be a little strange atmosphere wise. Like I say, the crowd sometimes is maybe a little sleepy. You see it across the country, the early kickoff. It's nobody's just riled up as, say, a half five kickoff, but, I think the fact it's the Scousers at home will get people up and ready and I think the players, they've got no no time for complacency and I think they'll know it. I think Guardiola will reinforce that they have to be ready from the jump. And I also think with all the stuff that's gone on this week, um, you know, about the Everton stuff and how that's led to so many discussions about City, um, I think both fan bases are going to be fired up and I think obviously Mike Keegan, I think shared obviously about the emails that have gone out to both sets of fan bases um, about uh, tragedy chanting and throwing missiles. So I think, I think it, I think it's going to be a feisty one um, even for a half 12 one, much more than it usually would be. I'm, I'm, I'm perplexed by the thing about early kickoffs. I honestly think it's a bit of a myth. Because I, I, I've never really been able to distinguish 
in an atmosphere between a 12.30 kickoff and a 3 p.m. kickoff and a 5.30 kickoff. I, I know it impacts on the rituals that we go through, but I think, I, think the, I think the players are far more impacted upon because if you've got a 12.30 kickoff, what you have to eat, you'll be eating something that you'd not normally eat at that hour of, uh, of the day. I'm, when I think of Liverpool games now, I do, in the Etihad, I do think of 12.30 kickoffs because we've played a lot of them. And that infamous 5-0 in the 17-18 season was, was, was a, a 12.30 kickoff. So I, I, I'm, I'm sure the players have to navigate it and, and managers would prefer that extra two and a half hours. But really, it's, it's City Liverpool and I cannot see for a second how the atmosphere would be dampened because of a two and a, a, a two and a half hour earlier start than, than normal. I, I think it will be pretty lively in there to, to, uh, at lunchtime tomorrow at the Etihad. Um, just want to stay with you for a sec, Chris. Um, it seems there's yeah. there's some controversy over who the referee is. So the referee uh, is Chris Kavanagh, if mm-hmm. if if I'm not mistaken, um, and this has caused some serious consternation amongst uh, our our scouse brethren and i come i came across something which is uh keith hackett the former head of the pgmol said at the beginning of every season the referee's background information is audited they complete a form that includes who they support the history of if they played the game and with the addresses where they are residing that gives you a picture that comes into use when you're appointing it's about ensuring for example you wouldn't appoint a sheffield based ref for a sheffield team so firstly is that correct as i've read it out um, I'm not sure. I, I can't say that definitively because I'm sure that will be part of the criteria. Wh- whether they apply that at the highest level now, I'm not entirely sure. If if you don't have a Sheffield-based, I don't know whether you wouldn't appoint a Sheffield-based official to a Sheffield game. I, I'm really not sure, uh, but I think there will be there will be kind of due diligence that will take place to ensure that there's no there's no potential for prejudicial. Um, activity on the field in, in terms of officials, but but there will be uh, there will be some sort of framework in place. I, th- I think what's interesting is to look at where the source of these complaints are coming from. As you say, the louder Liverpool fans on social media and Richard Keys, it kind of tells you all you need to know about the, the complaint that, that, that's being made. From my point of view, it's an it's it, it is it's it's patent nonsense, and and I think that that to, that it, it's you know unless you unless you capture an official on holiday with a Manchester City kit on while he's on the beach, it's like I'm sorry, I'm not having it. I I my, the, the, the level that I referee at on a couple of occasions, my son who plays at county level, I've refereed him. I've made it. I've made it transparent to the league and to the teams. There's no problem. Um, so I, I, I think it's Richard Keys showing signs of of a failing mental health, and I think it's Liverpool fans just trying to claw, but any sort of sense of injustice or, or indignation um, around this. The fact is, is that is that you know Kavanaugh will be a professional. He could be. He could live in Westminster and be a Liverpool fan. You know, it, it it doesn't it doesn't kind of bear scrutiny. I think. Yeah, I go along with that. But also, I really, really want like a soft penalty in the first ten minutes. Oh yeah, <laughs> just, I, just wa- I want. Me- sa- 
I, I, I want Salah sent off for sneezing. This is so, it, man. You know, so <laughs> I, I want a second yellow for a Scouse player for complaining or no brandishing a yellow card after a nasty yeah. city challenge, right? I yeah. want that to get them a second yellow, get them yarding off the pitch, and then I want a soft penalty, please. Thank you very much. Yeah. And I want, I want Klopp sent to the stand. Yeah, as definitely, well. definitely. And actually, for, for actually if we can get if we can get a repeat of Guardiola celebrating in front of the Liverpool substitutes yeah. and shaking one of their <laughs> hands, I'm all for that, man. That would also be a, a, a very, very lovely thing. Um, so, look, I guess, I guess, going into the game for us, the big question uh, is a fitness question. It's who's fit and who's not fit. Um, so, of the injured players. Edison is back full training, Ake is back full training, Rodri is back full training, and Haaland is back full training. So unless I'm mistaken, it's only really John Stones that would be missing from what we would consider to be our our core 11 uh, or our, our core squad. Um, I guess the only other issue is Alvarez flying back from Argentina or from South America. Apparently, he only got back on Thursday evening, yesterday evening. So that might make it a little bit tight for him. So I think what's interesting is to look at two different teams, one with Alvarez in it and one with Alvarez not in it. Sorry, I should also say... um, isn't Mateus Nunes injured? And we know Kovacic is injured as well. So Stones, yes. Nunes, and, and Kovacic are the, uh, are, the three, are the three major omissions. Um, George, I'll start with you then. So let's say Alvarez is, is, uh, is available. He comes back and he's fine and he's fresh. What sort of team are you picking? I think, well, if, if Alvarez is fresh, I mean, he's... One of he's one of few players who I would bank on maybe getting an appearance actually after fly, getting back in from South America, you know, under forty eight hours before the kickoff and after playing for Argentina, he's he's got that stamina and that that grit about him. So if he was to play, I think obviously and if, and if Edison's fit, Edison in goal, um, Kyle Walker, Ruben Diaz, Akanji, Kvadiol. And then Rodri, if he is fit, which I'm pretty much he will be now if he's back in full training. Um, him, Bernardo, and um, him, Bernardo, and then this is where if if we got Kovacic, Nunes out, then depends if we put Foden in the in the midfield, and then then yeah, Doku, Haaland, and Alvarez but with maybe Foden going on to the right and Alvarez coming in behind Haaland. Mm. Okay. So basically it, it's kind of, it's it's a little bit what we started the season with where you've got Phil on the right, uh, you've got Doku or Grealish on the left and you've got uh, Erling and uh, Alvarez just off of off of Erling and Bernardo yeah. and, and Rodri is. I, th- I think he'll want somebody tricky on the right um, because there's Liverpool's left back, obviously Robertson's out. So it's going to be either Simakas at left back or Joe Gomez, mm. and Joe pick, Gomez is pick quite Gomez. prone to, um, you know, cards and also, um, you know, let's just say lapses in concentration. And Simakas likes to push forward, so I think he'll want somebody tricky there. Um, whether that is Foden or if he or if he um, moves Doku across to the right, I'm not too sure. Chris, 
Um, so I kind of, I kind of look at, I look at the, I look at our left and their right as more important insofar as I think that, or I know that Trent this season has been playing the inverted fullback role where he's kind of stepping into midfield, but it's very pronounced. And actually every time I've seen Liverpool, there's just a massive, like they just leave massive gaps that can be exploited. You can, you really, if they lose the ball in a bad position, two passes and and you're you're running literally at the goalkeeper or at Van Dyke. And I mean, you know, I've seen Luton cause them all manner of problems on the break. Mm. I've seen Brentford call them cause them all manner of problems on the break. So the question I'm gonna ask you is who's more likely to exploit that, Doku or Grealish? Um I'd, so I'd say on the break, it's more likely Doku. And that, that is not a criticism of Grealish because Gre- what Grealish now offers us is a unique skill set, which I don't mm. even think he knew he had when he first came to City. And Doku offers just something... A little, uh, Doc, Doc offers us something which we've not had for a while, which is that immediacy on that wing, the way the way he penetrates. Um he's the only player in that in the Guardiola squad where he seemingly be encouraged to be as individual as possible and and it is working for us. I if if uh, I think I would want Doku to 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 be up against Alexander Arnold tomorrow because I just want him to ask those questions. Mm. And if it proves to be futile and Doku can't can't provide like sort of you know can't really penetrate. Then then you could switch him over for for, for Jack. But I think uh, uh, it's interesting because because I think that whilst whilst Liverpool have been scoring plenty of goals and and have got a good winning streak at the minute, you're right. They are still vulnerable. They they've always been vulnerable under Klopp defensively, and I think that they remain. Uh, like that so but it does become because just with with, I'd forgot Kovacic was injured and that's why I thought that possibly Alvarez would not start but actually now I can't see a situation where he doesn't start Mm. it could be for me it has to be Bernardo and Rodri in the middle um and and Phil on the right hand side and then it is a question of how you know Liverpool are very good on the ball. Will he want Jack to keep the ball and maintain possession? With Doku, you increase the, the possibility of losing the ball and being turned over. But I, yeah, I, again, it's that, it's that kind of dilemma I have. Um, I, I, can, I, I can pretty confidently predict um, that, that 11 apart from two places and it's, it's whether he starts Jack or, or Doku. And who he plays on the left-hand side of defence, knowing that that person is going to have to battle against Salah, and whether and whether that's a Kanji that's coming inside or whether it's Gavardial. So I'm I'm really unsure, but I think the rest of the team picks itself. I think it'll be Ake. I think I think the back four will be Walker. Oh, I think it'll be Ake. Yeah, I think, I think, it'll think, be Ake. F- I think the back four will be Walker, Diaz, uh, Akanji, and Ake. Um, so. Why can I ask you why? Why do you say that? Why do you say Ake? Ake's done. Ake's done really well against Salah uh, when he when he's come okay. up against him for City, and I think that Guardiola had had a pretty torrid time uh, against Chelsea, um, mm. and so I can. Uh, and I just I, I think that there's going to be there, 
from from City's point of view, so I I think that what Pep's going to do is he's going to be conservative at the back and he's going to load the front. And what I mean by that is I envisage a scenario where he decides to put Doku on the right, Grealish on the left, and play a midfield three of Rodri, Bernardo, and uh, and Phil, and put uh, and put Haaland up top, and have have the option of of Alvarez from the bench. Um, because I think that, as we've alluded to, actually both of their fullback, both of their fullback sides, are sides that can be got at. And I think that whether it's Simicast or it's Joe Gomez, I would back Doku to to give them an absolutely torrid time on mm. on on our right and their left. And I think that by playing Jack on our left, it offers you an element of control as well. You kind of have the best of both worlds. And then you know if you use Rodri. Uh, Bernardo and Foden centrally, the three of them. I mean, you know, it's just, it's a very, very strong spine. And Ake kind of, he plays a much more conservative left-sided role. Um, and Walker's Walker, you know, Kyle can can uh, can can be more conservative. Like I think, I think it was Arsenal last season where we played a very flat back four. I think away at uh, away at the Emirates we played a very flat back four, and I wonder whether it isn't a little bit more of a flat back four tomorrow, a little mm. bit more of a four two three one or something like that. Uh, and then, but then you can also do that with Foden on the right and Alvarez. Uh, in behind and Rodri and Bernardo as the two. Um, and then you've got that choice of, do you play Grealish or Doku on the left-hand side? But I'm not really, you know, it's funny, like it, I find myself in a position where from a team selection point of view, every selection is a good selection. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah, absolutely. I mean, particularly with our bat line as well, I've, I've, I've commented on this earlier this season, like I don't really pay that much attention now it's because, because I have full faith in all of them. Yeah. But I think regardless of our starting eleven. Is there anything more exciting to look forward to than Bernardo Silva versus the entire Liverpool side? <laughs> <laughs> because he, in the same way Fernandinho loved a derby, yeah. Bernardo loves playing the scouts. He, does, doesn't he? he, he does. loves it. it oh. uh, sometimes I feel like you remember that cup of tea when we had to. Oh get my them god! Near? Yeah. Sometimes that, that I feel like he, he he could actually play the first half with a cup of tea in his hand and still run rings around them. But That's it was how. also it wasn't just the cup of tea. It was because he was dressed like a tramp. He looked like he'd just been because <laughs> he had this oversized coat on and he was stood there with more attitude than a naughty schoolboy being being chastised oh. at the front of the assembly. It was just the the level of disrespect like yeah. basically it's like it's like you've been told go and do the go and do the the, the the guard of honor do i have to yes all right i'll do it whatever and just got there and was the he stood there for the minimum possible time with his cup of tea so he could so he couldn't applaud them because i've got a cup of tea in my hand i can't applaud them what do you want me to do and then walks off it was oh it, at that point if he wasn't already cemented in my heart bernardo just found a way pure city bert Totally. Yeah, right. It, it, it's beautiful though. He, he does it off the pitch, but on the pitch, he's always so key against them as well. That totally. 18 19 one where he ran about 25k in one match and he was just everywhere. I think, you know, every time we beat Liverpool, he's always a big part of the puzzle. Mm. And I think just with, with the way that the Chelsea game unfolded before the break and the fact that we're at home, I'll, I expect I expect a high level performance. I think. You know, if, yeah. I, I was quite critical of Ruben Diaz. I thought he was poor against Chelsea. I thought Cavadio was poor against Chelsea. I expect Diaz to be way better tomorrow. Way, way, way better. Yeah, um, 
Right. I'm going to wrap this up. Chris, give me a prediction. Score prediction. Uh, 2-1 City. George? Uh, 3-2 City. Ooh, tight. So I am going a 4-1 City. I I like it. I I I like it. Okay, based on what... I say, hey Sam, based on you just need to just need to clarify that four one is big. Based on what what what's what, what's the key difference? So I think that uh, the 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 unpredictability the unpredictability of Doku. I think the fact mm-hmm. that Haaland didn't play in the four one last season. Uh, it was Alvarez who led the line. So Haaland's going to want to you know he's he's going to he's going to want to stamp his his imprint and his his authority on the game. Uh, I think from a sending a message point of view, I think the the collectively they're going to want to send a message. And I think we're just better than them. I'm sorry, mm. but I just don't. I'm maybe it's maybe it's a little bit of blue tinted bias, but I just don't rate the Scousers. I think I've watched them this season. Yeah, they've got loads of goals in them because they spent a shitload of money on loads of attackers and they've got loads of attackers. So yeah, they can score goals against shit teams, but they can't defend for Toffee, man. I just mm. genuinely, I don't think they can defend. And I think that if we, if we apply pressure and we start with the right intensity, I, I and they, they have such a, uh, they have a very fragile mentality. They have a very, very fragile mentality. If they were to concede a goal early, I think that, and and City kept the pressure up. If, if if City did that thing that we can do sometimes, where we score one goal and then we just take the ball back and we go, you're not having the ball. We're just yeah. gonna we're gonna play the game in your half again. I think they'll be rocked. And if we score early on, and it, it it's a result of Doku skinning a fullback oh. and laying them bare. I think I think it then becomes a problem for Liverpool because Definitely. they'll 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 have a fear of God in them at, at that point. And I think I think yeah, we we don't we don't give the ball back. And yeah, if we score in the first fifteen, we could score a few in the first half, particularly if we are kind of annihilating them on on the wing and bringing it in, which is Doku's main you know Definitely. attribute. And I think the, on the other going the other way, I think it's really important that Kyle Walker, Ruben Diaz, uh, Manuela Manuel Kanji, they have very stable games. If if yeah. those three have stable, they don't have to do anything flashy. Just be stable. Don't do anything daft. Don't give the ball away in your own half. Don't don't make a blind pass. Yeah. Walker, don't do that thing of letting the lad run in front of you and then trying to sprint to catch up with him. Just, you know, just just be sensible. If they defend sensibly, we'll be good. So yeah, 4-1 for me. Right. I'm wrapping this up. Chris, thank you very much. Pleasure's always. Thanks, mate. George, thank you very much. Cheers, guys. To everybody who listened, it was the Friday show. If you liked it, Head over to our website, check out the 9320 player, sign up. Uh, loads of podcasts every week. Thank you. Be safe, be well, and as always, up the blues. <laughs>